Author Media presents Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, the professor of book marketing, Thomas Umstadt Jr., and today we're going to talk about the Kindle ebook market. And we have a special guest to deliver our annual State of the Kindle Address, or almost annual State of the Kindle Address. Uh, we didn't get him in quite last year, but I'm going to blame uh, having a baby at the end of the year for why that didn't happen. And we're going to talk about uh, publishing trends and what is hot and what is not in the year 2020. Our guest is the CEO and founder of Kalytics. Dot com, which is a leading uh, Kindle market research resource for authors and publishers. He spent 20 years uh, at a top management consulting company uh, putting together strategy guides and market analysis uh, that cost millions of dollars for companies that would pay for it. And now he's using that same expertise to analyze the Amazon marketplace. So this is a real treasure to be able to talk to him about what's going on in the Kindle market. Uh, Alex Newton, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Well, hello, hello, Thomas. Great to be back on the show. Now, last time we talked to you, uh, you were living in Germany, and now I can hear a storm blowing in. Are you in the Antarctic now? Well, it does sound like the Antarctic, I have to confess. Well, I did move to Switzerland, and we do have a storm warning here. So uh, I believe it could be so strong that even the podcast post-production is not going to take it out. So we better refer to it right away. So if an avalanche takes out your small Swiss chalet, we will uh, wish you well and we'll catch as much of this interview as possible. Uh, but let's let's just jump right in and talk about Kalytics because uh, I, I mentioned it and I think a lot of people don't know what Kalytics is. So what is Kalytics and what does it do for authors? Well, in a, in a nutshell, we're a market research company and we provide market research data on the book market to authors, agents and publishers and well, our purpose is to provide a bit more transparency in an otherwise, you know, pretty intransparent market. So to help all these people out there make better and faster publishing decisions and, uh, you know, with this, hopefully sell more, more books, you know. All right. So let's talk about 2020 and the Kindle market. What? Let's just talk big picture. Are ebooks growing or shrinking uh, this year in sales? Well, you know, I always like to look at the facts and then extrapolate from there. The, the first thing anybody has to know, whether ebooks are growing or shrinking, and when you discuss this, you know, even not just going into the new year, uh, but in uh, over the last couple of years, it's always been a matter of perspective, right? And the perspective is, who who do you ask? And I always like to start with the traditional publisher's view. Um, I think in the U.S. it is the the AAP, right, Association of American Publishers, who report their quarterly trade publishing numbers, and and then the mainstream media picks up on it and and quotes them, hey, ebooks are shrinking again, and it, it was just on their last numbers again. They they uh, we we took an extrapolation of their Q3 numbers, and they come out with. A Ebooks still shrinking, you know, another 3.8% a year, roughly, right? And you go there, hmm, does, does this dovetail with my own experience and what, what, what I see around me? And once you dig into it, you, you know, their, their sample, I think is about a thousand three hundred, uh, traditional publishers in the U.S. And well, the leading company in the ebook market, 
which is of course Amazon, is not in the panel. So how can you discuss these market numbers if you have, you know, the numbers using a sample that represents probably less than 20% of the overall ebook market? So <laughs> that's the one view ebooks shrinking if you ask the traditionals but if you ask me again what the view is on amazon i'm gonna paint a paint a different picture much different picture actually that's right because i talked with and my other podcast actually interviewed an executive from the mpd group or a representative from the mpd group which is the big like research firm and wh what they do to collect their data is they pull a lot of the top publishers like what you're mentioning and then they also get retail data from the retailers other than Amazon. And so they have this big hole in their data. And he made it, admitted it in the podcast. He's like, yeah, we have no idea how many ebooks are being sold by independent authors. And from his perspective, he was like, well, but it's obviously it can't be a very big number, right? It won't change the numbers very much. You know, maybe 1% of ebooks are sold by indie authors. That's what his thinking is. He didn't say that, but I could kind of tell from his tone of voice. And I've spent enough time with publishing executives to know that they don't consider indie to be anything at all. And I know, having looked at your data and just Amazon data in general, that in a lot of categories, the best-selling authors for Kindle are indie authors. <laughs> it's not just that like they have a big part of the market, but they're the number one best-selling author in certain categories are independent authors. And so that's a huge chunk of sales that those big press release companies like MPD Group or AAP aren't seeing. And so when they're saying that the market is shrinking, they're not counting indie authors. And I know you get the data from Amazon and so what are you seeing when you lump in the indie authors? Is the market shrinking or growing? Well, you know, the first thing to consider is what they get fundamentally wrong is that, well, if you look at the U.S. ebook market, about 85%, if not more, of the ebook market are held by Amazon. So that's number one. So if you look at the Amazon data, you get a much more representative view of the market than looking at any other sample that can possibly be be out there. So if you just look at the... Um, now, Amazon does not officially publish their ebook numbers. You know, if you look at their annual reports, they're very restrictive on what they disclose there when it comes to individual commodities. Um, but what you can look at is, for example, one indicator is the ebook growth or the growth of the Kindle Global Select Fund, you know, all the royalties that are paid out to authors that have signed up to the Kindle Unlimited program, which we come to that in a second, you know, holds actually quite a significant share of these 85%. And that um, pot of money has grown by another 13% last year to um, more than 300 million by now, right? So that that is one indicator. And if you look at the payouts and what they now pay out per page, you can basically extrapolate on what does that mean to the ebook market. And well, our numbers basically suggest per estimate that the growth since 2016 has been like 19% per annum. Just last year, you know, it, it grew significantly again by 14%, the whole ebook market and the pay or the page reads, if you want. And, um, you know, these, these are the numbers and who, whoever says ebooks are shrinking is to my mind completely missing, missing the boat. So I want to underline that point because I want people to understand this. The traditional publishers sales, when they're saying that ebooks are shrinking, they're not lying. But what they're saying is 
our sales are shrinking. And what you're looking at with the overall uh, Kindle sales is that overall sales are growing. So what that means is all of the growth in eBooks is coming to independent authors. All of the growth, <laughs> including grabbing some market share away from the traditionally published traditional publishing companies. Absolutely, and if and if you look at it, I mean, no wonder because the the interest of the traditional publishers is obviously not ebook. If you look at their trade revenues, they um, they make about eight billion dollars in the U.S. in trade revenues. And we're talking paper when you say trade revenues. Is there trade paperback? No, that's across formats. But of these eight billion, you have about three point one billion hardback. You have about two two point seven billion, if I remember, remember com- correctly, paperback in mass market. And then the famous ebook number in their numbers is about uh, close to a billion billion dollars. And then audio, which we should also be talking about, is about six hundred plus million per annum. So that is their trade numbers. And that uh, close to 1 billion US dollars in their ebook numbers has been shrinking. But the Amazon number have been growing. And as you mentioned, it is then interesting to see, well, where does that growth coming from? And well, who are those guys who are really earning the money? And we, we made a bit of uh, triangulation or, you know, uh, for the non-consultants, a basically a very informed estimate based on looking some 50,000 books, right? And we ran all those individual books against the names of Amazon imprints, big five imprints, indies, etc. And what we currently see in the data that, you know, if you just, for example, look at the top of the mountain where all the money is being earned, over time, uh, over the last three years, we saw about 38% of all the top 100 rankings across all bestseller lists being taken by indies. Next biggest shares and heavily growing the Amazon imprints, and only then come the big five and only then all the others. So that is how we view the market. And in all fairness, how many other you know indie publishing experts who basically don't care about what the big traditional publisher CEOs and boardrooms think about ebooks. That's what the market picture is for those who earn their money on a monthly basis based on on Kindle publishing and other platforms. That's right. So traditional publishers are making eight billion dollars collectively, and only a billion of that is ebooks. So for them, ebooks are only a small piece of the pie, whereas for your typical indie author, more than half, maybe 80% of their money comes from ebooks. So they care a lot more about ebook and they care a lot more about Kindle. And I've actually seen traditional publishers price their ebooks such that to really make them unappealing. I remember I was doing a comparison because uh, I was comparing Kalytics data and I was talking with an agent and he's like, you know, these numbers are crazy. You're like, this famous author is hardly ranking. And so I pulled up that famous author's most recent book, and his book was twelve ninety nine on the Kindle store. And I'm like, yeah, he's not going to have a high rank on the Kindle store at the price of twelve ninety nine. And the only reason his publisher would price his ebook that high is because they're trying to drive sales to the paperback, uh, which is where they're getting um, their better margins and they have more motivation. And so it, it, part of it is the reason why traditional publishers aren't doing as well in the ebook space is because they're not trying to do well in the ebook space. For them, it's not a priority like it is for independent 
um, publishers. But, uh, but I do want to talk about trends. So what are you seeing evolving? What's changed over the last year on Amazon? Because the indies gaining market share, that's been going on for a long time, like you say. But like, what's, what's new in 2019 and, and into 2020? Of course. I mean, there are a number of factors now um, going into this whole e- equation. And and uh, I think first foremost is the what we call the, the, the pay, pay to play, right? I mean, all the authors and indies and publishers out there are worried about visibility and their books showing up in the rankings and what can they do. And the fact of the matter is that in uh, 2019, Amazon changed some things in their interface for one. So there are fewer books showing. They're showing in a list view. If you are, for example, on a desktop, you get about 16 books per page, one prominent book at the top. And these are like 17 display positions, if you will, on on one page. Now, of those, seven positions are sponsored results by now. And that means that basically 41% of the real estate on an Amazon page is now you have to pay to show up on it, right? So one big equation is how to manage your ads and how to get visibility on Amazon with a basically paid advertising strategy. And that is why we probably will see a... I'm not necessarily sure we see a shakeout, right? But we've all seen the phenomenon on Facebook or Google of the rising ad costs and uh, a bit like the winner takes it all in the end because they can afford to then reinvest their money into more ads and more ads so that that's potentially one effect which is i want to point out though that's a big amount so am on google when you do a search only like 20 percent of the screen real estate maybe less is uh, dedicated to ads you have a small little bit along the top and maybe along the side whereas amazon's potentially twice as much of the screen is dedicated to ads which really does change the nature of uh, the relationship and and they can get away with it because it's a store right you're going to amazon because you want to purchase something it's just like when you're at the grocery store at least here in the states the placement of the products on the grocery store is actually paid for by the vendors so if you see a big display for a certain brand of toilet paper that toilet paper company paid to have that display put there (laughs) that's actually a form of advertising and it doesn't feel like advertising because you may have gone to the store to buy toilet paper and this one is a little bit closer and it's a little bit cheaper and there's a coupon or whatever and so you pick that one and you put it in your basket Totally agree. Same mechanism. What is shelf space and point of sale displays in in the Walmart or wherever you go? That's exactly what the uh, what the page is, the online page on an Amazon shop. Totally agree. All right. So we talked about pay to play and how that's becoming a bigger deal. And you're right about the uh, winner takes all because the more you have to spend, the more you have to spend. (laughs) So what are some other trends that you're seeing? Well, the other one is what also many people have not seen is the the gain of Kindle Unlimited, right? So Kindle Unlimited, where you basically, the author or publisher goes exclusive with Amazon. And there have always been these, what, what do you call, well, conspiracy theories, right? Oh my God, you know, Amazon is uh, giving particular weight in the rankings to Kindle Unlimited books. Well, maybe, maybe not. I personally believe that is not the case. There are other reasons. But the fact of the matter is that Kindle Unlimited has gained significantly in share. So we look back at the numbers in 2016, and out of all the top 100 rankings across the top 30, basically the 30 main categories, 
not even half, about 45% of these uh, top-ranking positions were taken by Kindle Unlimited books. In twenty end of 2019, we saw 62% kindle unlimited books right so i mean 45 to 62 percent that's like a huge 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 jump and while that has obviously differed by genre i mean it you know for some genres if you look at the romance bestsellers like 80 percent of the ebooks are kindle unlimited same in sci-fi and fantasy same in teen young adult so some really major genres kindle unlimited is really dominating the game right and so you get people say hey is amazon gaming the system and giving preference to kindle unlimited so i personally believe that the reason behind it is very simple if you are an end customer and you sign up to kindle unlimited you pay a monthly subscription right but once once you paid and you are on the site the uh, downloading a book is like a free download for you if you will but the irony is the the Kindle Unlimited download drives the sales rank of a book in exactly the same way as a paid purchase, an individual purchase. So it's like a free book competing with a paid book. So over time, obviously, the, the relatively higher conversion that is baked into a, a virtually free book like a KU download will outpace will outperform the paid books and that's why we see have seen this huge gain in kindle unlimited does that mean to an author hey you have to go kindle unlimited and stop your wide strategy or, or vice versa there are other factors going into that into that play but that's one major thing many people have not seen that's right because amazon keeps two bestseller lists they keep a bestseller list of free books and they keep a bestseller list of paid books. And you might think that Kindle Unlimited downloads go into that free category, but that's not what happens. Because technically, it's not free. You're paying your $10 a month if you're a reader for Kindle Unlimited. And so it, it does juice the, that paid list. Um, let's talk about Amazon imprints. You've mentioned them a few times. Amazon is kind of ha- having their cake and eating it too, because they're not just a retailer. They're also a publisher. They publish their own books. And I've often thought that they would just dominate the market because they have such good data because they know unlike every other company they know who's finishing what books and they can know which authors are good from an objective perspective Uh, so how are the amazon imprints doing are they gaining or losing market share they've gained market share i mean they've i mean first of all the amazon by purchasing these publishers uh, i mean the big ones like thomas and mercer uh, for mystery thriller suspense malt lake mainly romance and lake union they're the three big ones there are i think 20 other ones and th- by now they have certainly more than you know 26 percent in in share and that is significant and one re you know there are within amazon chinese wall so I, there's certainly no like official gaming system and they getting preferential treatment. But obviously, as an Amazon company, you will have some advantage. And if you talk to certain authors, they they say who, who are with them, they say, well, you know, they are an Amazon company. They know e-business and they basically thrive much better in the Amazon ecosystem as many external publishers. So um, they've, they've become a major player. So let's talk about audio. As you know, I'm a big advocate for audiobooks. I exclusively read audiobooks. 
uh, how is audio growing? Because I know audio is growing uh, quite a bit, but what are you seeing in, in the impact on Kindle specifically, the growth on audio? Well, th there's two things. There's the Amazon and there's the traditional publisher view. And this is probably the one item where both worlds coincide and, and agree. So for example, out of that 8 billion we mentioned earlier, about 600 plus million a year in 2019 will be audiobook for the traditional publishers. And that's to them a growth of about 33% or something in the year 2019. That is significant. Now, if you look at the Amazon platform, they also, they don't publish like their, their audio sales. But what we did do over the years is we monitored the, uh, the overall book bestseller lists on the Amazon store. So genre by genre. And we looked at the penetration of the various formats in, across those bestseller lists. And, uh, although I cannot give you like a percentage, it is, um, if you just look at it graphically, now there's a podcast, you don't have it in front of you, but the, basically the, the area of audiobook has grown significantly also since 2017, uh, going into and going into, uh, now we're early 2020. And if you look at some of the top bestseller lists, it, it depends really by genre. But for example, um, if you go into sci-fi and fantasy, their audio is, is really big. 35% of the top 100 in, in sci-fi by now has become audiobooks 25 percent in literature and fiction overall um quote me on the romance was surprisingly low that was less than five percent which which i i found surprising but if you talk to romance authors they don't find it surprising yeah I, well i can tell you why um, part of it is a uh, gender difference so um, women are the majority readers of romance and men are the majority listeners of audiobooks so the genres that you tend to see that do really well in audiobooks are more men uh, male reader targeted genres so the business is a really big genre in audiobooks sci-fi and fantasy is a really big genre um, audible has made some efforts to kind of reach out and grow their female listenership and i think it's helped to a certain degree but they still it's still like the one kind of book that uh, format that there's more men than women, right? Like normally amongst readers, women just dominate, right? Library attendants, mostly women, you know, bookstore visitors, mostly women, uh, ebook readers, mostly women, audiobooks, it's like a bunch of dudes. It's like this weird phenomenon. And um, I've, I've never heard anyone explain the, the why behind that. Uh, but what's interesting to me is how little of the money is getting to uh, traditional publishers from audiobook sales. So, so you're mentioning something like 600 um, million is getting to uh, the actual publishers. That's what they're reporting as their profits. If you look at the Audiobook Association, uh, the Audio Publishers Association, so this is not the book publishers. This, this is the association of like the readers of the audiobooks. They're reporting in back in 2018 that they were already past a billion dollars in revenue. And what's happened is that uh, Amazon completely dominates or had previously dominated the audiobook space because Audible is just such a huge player. Even when you buy an audiobook on iBooks, you're buying it from Audible, which is owned by Amazon. And, Am and Amazon's able to use that market position to create just really unfair deals with the publishing companies so that very little of that $15 that you spent for an Audible credit ends up with the publisher and even less 
ends up with the author. And what the publishers have done in 2019 to offset that is that they've teamed up with BookBub and launched a new audiobook publishing service called Chirp. And I will say, as an audiobook consumer, I'm starting to switch and I'm starting to buy books on Chirp. And I'm still, you know, platinum Audible user. <laughs> so I haven't like fired Audible, but I'm starting to switch some of my consumption over to Chirp. And the uh, Chirp has a better deal or is a better deal for publishers. And that's why they're they're backing it so aggressively with a lot of their top content. So Chirp isn't like a bunch of indie books. There's some indie books here and there, but it's a lot of top named authors. And the books are aggressively discounted. So, you know, it's only $5 for a book often on Chirp, sometimes only $2 for a book. And the publishers are willing to give that big discount because they're still getting potentially more money selling the $5 book on Chirp than they are selling a $10 book on Audible. That's very interesting. Yeah, and I can only concur to the to the genres and the, you know, potentially male listener domination there. I mean, if I look at our in emerging genre stats on the audio side, I mean, as you say, sci-fi, as you say, business and money books, self-help books, um, usually dom- health fitness, uh, you know, th- these are the type of things that probably also people, uh, the guys, you know, listen to on their way to work in the morning and uh, I, I totally agree. And it's going to be interesting to see how that game pans out, you know, the Audible subscription model versus, you know, these new emerging platforms. Yeah, so I I try not to do too many predictions, but my prediction is is that over the next five years, the gender gap will even out. And my basis of this prediction is that, that that's what's happened with podcasting. So uh, podcast listening for the first 10 years of podcasting was dominated by men mostly podcasts were made by men podcasts were consumed by men in fact it's a joke right you have a a gaggle of geese you have a flock of birds and a gathering of white men is called a podcast right but uh, that's changed just in the last two years there's been a flood of new female podcast listeners and i think that uh, podcasting is the gateway drug (laughs) to audiobook listening Uh, you listen to some free podcasts and then you hear some commercials for audiobook services and then suddenly you're starting to buy uh, audiobooks. And I think that that will open up opportunities for books with a more female readership in the audio space because previously books have struggled, you know, romance books have struggled in, uh, to reach female readers um, that they're not making the fortunes there that they're making, say, in Kindle Unlimited. T- totally got it. Although I got one, by the way, one very interesting hypothesis on that from a romance author and she said well the romance readers are so voracious and you know they consume the book so fast and they say just the speed of the audio is is too too slow for many consumers you know female consumers of the romance novels so i found that an interesting interesting piece of news interesting and and audible did launch a special romance subscription program uh and they have ways of speeding it up but they still haven't quite figured out how to solve solve that problem but i do want to go on and talk about other genres other than romance Uh, and let's yeah and let's get back to uh kindle so um what's uh, happening in the genres what are some genres that have gained in the last year and what are some genres that have kind of dropped off in the last year right i mean if you uh, if you look at the overall trend um the it's been surprisingly stable when it comes to the overall share that we see in in the genre so clearly number one uh still the romance genre then followed by uh, closely behind mystery thriller suspense and then followed by sci-fi often 
often competing with teen, young, adult, and nonfiction as as the next one. So they are the big ones. But obviously, once you then dive into the level deeper, and I think we'll also do so much, uh, do so quite extensively in the in the webinar we want to do together, Thomas. So. but within romance, within mystery thriller suspense, that and within sci-fi, within teen young adult and nonfiction, that's where the main things are happening. And within those, um, it can get fairly interesting, you know, where you then have these trends of, well, are the vampires in paranormal romance going up or going down? What are the shifters doing? The dragons and um, that, uh, that's where we can go in probably endless granularity. Well, and I, I know that that's what your service does, so I don't want to get into too much of that in, here on the podcast. But I will say, for those of you who are curious about sub-subgenres and you know what's a, a good one to write in right now, the Kalytics reports specifically answer that question, among others. Uh, but um, let's talk a little bit about kind of where you see um, the trends going in the future. So last year was kind of stable. Are you seeing that? In the future, you know, what are what are you expecting to happen in 2020? Get out your crystal ball, and we'll hold you accountable next in the 2021 episode. Yeah, totally. Well, I I think two things are going to happen. I think we're going to see um, continued gain share by the Amazon imprints um, at the expense of of traditional publishers. I think within the indie space, we're going to see a. Um, my prediction is holding hanging in there potentially slightly gaining but we may be seeing a little bit of shifts within the indie lens landscape because within the indie landscape we are also seeing people moving more to a collaborator and publisher model right so that in turn then allows those indie publishers or indie authors or indie author collaborations to potentially invest a bit in smarter ways into the advertising, potentially jointly create trends. I I also do see this and see some potential there. Because if you ask me, well, what is the the next big trend, right? I mean, there are a couple of things that maybe really be underlying by what readers want, right? And um, if we look back in time, you know, we saw obviously the big, uh, the years and years of whatever vampire romance and paranormal romance. If you then look into like this year in mystery thriller suspense, you know, a huge growth of psychological thrillers, huh? you know, way over over the market average. So there are these individual pockets where you say, well, there's some underlying megatrends. Um, however, you also have things where simply authors get together and say, well, what is the trend we want to create? And I think there is huge potential there because if so much of the space, the shelf space is paid, as we discussed earlier, those who pay can create the trend, right? If you suddenly see all uh, whatever dragon urban fantasy novels, you know, all over the space because people you know, there's paranormal or urban fantasy authors saying this year is going to be the dragon or next year it's going to be the, uh, the the female superhero. That is how trends will be created in, in the time to come. It'll be interesting to see if that works because so often trends happen because there's some super big hit book, right? So the vampire romance trend is really kicked off by the Twilight books. 
that were totally epically successful. And, you know, readers would read the Twilight books, especially the voracious romance readers who are reading at this rapid pace and they're reading two, three, ten books a month. And they, you know, get through the whole Twilight series in a month, let's say, if they're new to that series. And they're like, I want more like this. The indies were really good at saying, hey, we have more books that are similar to Twilight, but better, right? Or that that's the pitch. And then suddenly you're creating a genre, you know, and creating a category on Amazon that's very vibrant. But it, it started with a hit. And so you never know um, what those hits are going to be, or it's hard to predict those hits ahead of time. Uh, you know, this is why being an agent, a successful agent, is always tricky <laughs> to predict the next uh, big smash hit. But one thing I have noticed is that indies are much more responsive to those trends. Yeah, they are agile, and you know, sometimes it's reactive, and sometimes it's proactive. If you look at the reactive game, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So, for example, Twilight, uh, obviously, then way long time after that already died down you still had you know bella forest and her more than 60 books of shades of vampire series and 50 other people who jumped onto the bandwagon and they made a living over a 10 year i mean twilight is 10 years ago or something right and the vampires still don't die on the amazon platform but but in other categories Take superhero for example last year 2009 we just did a superhero study um to update the last year's one, 2019 has seen the highest number of superhero movies. Uh, we saw uh, the iconic Stan Lee pass away uh, end of 2018. And all that media hype, you would think that may have helped superhero fiction. But in fact, yeah, the, there are some you know good pockets out there, but the niche has really not come out of out of a niche status. Same with Ready Player One, Lit RPG, Game Lit. It, it's really grown significantly, but will it ever be the vampire thing? Um, it, it's just too niche a, a market. So in some cases, the big movie blockbusters, they help predict some things down the line. In other cases, I mean, take Academy Romance or Reverse Harem. These were potentially more megatrends coming together with the Harry Potter generation has grown up and they're now grown-ups and they read romance but they still like this notion of you know we're all at this magic academy and so it may work but this is clearly a, a an area where you had authors coalesce and uh, either consciously or unconsciously create a trend all right we are out of time and if we didn't get to your subgenre, i have Good news, and that is that uh, Alex and I are going to do a webinar where we're going to dive even deeper into specific genres. We're going to answer listener questions of the webinar, and the webinar is 100% free. So if you're interested in that, the webinar is going to be February 26th. 2020. So for those of you listening in the future, uh, you won't be able to come to the webinar live. We, we may have a replay that's available. Uh, and if that is available, we'll link to it here in the show notes um, for this episode. And the, the webinar is at 3 p.m. Central Time in the U.S. And if you'd like to see the time zone in your time zone, go to the link. Uh, it's kalytics.com slash novel marketing. We'll also have a link to, to sign up for the webinar. And I really do encourage you uh, to come to that. It's really important to know where the market is heading. As I've said many times on this podcast before, if you want to write the kinds of books that people like, 
you need to write the kinds of books that people already like. And the way to find out what they already like is to familiarize yourself with market data. And I really like the market data that Kalytics provides, which is why I keep bringing Alex back. And we've done this before. The, we had an episode and then we followed it up with the webinar and we got really good response, which is why we're doing it again in 2020. And hopefully we'll do it again every year and I won't, I won't miss it and I won't make any more uh, excuses. So I do encourage you to come uh, to the webinar on February 26, 2020. And Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the Novel Marketing Podcast. It was a big pleasure and I look forward to seeing you at the webinar then in due course. Yeah, and stay warm. Don't get blown away in that storm. I will. I will. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Our sponsor today is the Novel Marketing Mastermind Groups. If you have been wanting to jump into one of the mastermind groups, but you've been frustrated that they were sold out, I have some good news. Uh, the pre-published mastermind group has now been split into two, one for fiction and one for nonfiction, and they both have at least one spot open at the time of this recording. We also have mastermind groups for published authors and a mastermind group that I'm just now starting for people who are getting into podcasting or who have a podcast and want to take it to the next level. So if you'd like to learn more about the Novel Marketing Mastermind Groups, you can find that on our Patreon page for Novel Marketing. And speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Peter DeHaan, author of the book 52 Churches. Peter and his wife visited a different church every Sunday for a year. And this book is their story about what they learned. Discover more about Jesus' church, the people who go there, and just how vast our practices and worship are. And thank you to Peter for being a patron of Novel Marketing. If you would like to become a patron, we'll have a link in the show notes at novelmarketing.com. And if you can't afford to be a patron, but you still want to help the show, you can. You can just share a link to this episode on a Facebook group of authors that you think would benefit from it. Last week uh, during lunch, Mercy, my uh, 15-month-old daughter, her eyes rolled back into her head and she went into a seizure. And this was totally out of the blue. No previous events, uh, no family history that we knew of. And my wife held Mercy while calling 911 while my daughter was seizing. And you can imagine, it was incredibly scary. And the EMTs uh, came, the, you know, the fire department came, the ambulance came. And my daughter's fever had spiked to 104 out of nowhere. And Margaret uh, called me. I was at an author event at the time, and I'm rushing home. And terrible, scary thoughts were going through my mind. All I heard was, Mercy has had a seizure. I need you to come home right now. And it would, you know, it's a good thing I answered the phone because I was in the middle of a, a session. And I, but I answered the phone because my wife, as a good millennial, never makes phone calls. <laughs> I knew it had to be. Uh, a big deal if she was calling me. So I'm stuck in traffic, stuck at red lights, worrying about my daughter and hoping that she's okay. I finally get home. I see an ambulance parked in front of her house. I rush inside. There's nobody downstairs. There's nobody upstairs. I'm calling out for my family. There's nobody there. I look in the backyard. There's nobody there. I'm like, what is going on? And so then I finally go to the ambulance and I open it up and I see uh, a paramedic there holding our newborn son, uh, because somebody's got to hold him, and then my daughter's there on the stretcher, just weeping and crying in a way I've never heard her crying and shaking. My wife is there, and another paramedic is there. So I go into the ambulance, and they're you know, talking to us about whether or not you know, we should go to the hospital. And they said there's a chance that this is a febrile seizure, which is actually common with toddlers. It's not a very big deal. But there's also a chance that it's something else that's far worse. And 
you know, we have to go to the children's hospital to run tests. So at first I say, no, we'll drive her ourselves because our uh, medical plan doesn't cover ambulance rides. But as we're taking Mercy out of the ambulance, uh, she gets stiff and shaky again uh, from the cold or from a seizure. I'm not sure. And so I change my mind and I say, let's go to the emergency room. So Mercy and I uh, ride to the emergency room and I wasn't thinking clearly and so I told my wife, you know, just follow us in the car when you get a chance, after you get a chance to feed the baby, because the baby was hungry. Not at all thinking that a children's hospital in the middle of flu season is the, a terrible place to take a newborn. And after things calmed down, and unfortunately, fever, uh, Mercy's fever calmed down while we were sitting in traffic in the ambulance, and she started to feel better just on the trip to the hospital. Uh, by the time we get to the hospital, my wife and I both realize that we don't want my wife actually coming into the hospital. So she ends up sitting in the parking lot of the hospital for hours while they're doing a, the various tests on Mercy. So she's just sitting in the back of our car, nursing our, our baby on and off. And they do the tests on, on Mercy. And I'm holding my phone, you know, playing Baby Shark for her, hoping that she'll feel better. Anyway, eventually the tests come back negative. She didn't have any of the scary things uh, that it could have been. And it turns out that she had contracted, I think it's called Rosolia, Rosalia, which is a very, very common virus that young children get. And, you know, it was, it was all a bunch of nothing. <laughs> I mean, the, the, but the seizure was really, really scary. And the whole event was very disruptive, <laughs> to say the least. So we, we did all eventually get home and and Mercy's doing better. But it was very interesting that I was far more nervous for my daughter than I was when I went to the emergency room just a few months ago with a with a uh, bloody nose. It was so bad I had blood coming out of my eye. We've had a lot of trips to the hospital uh, over the last year. And so anyway, I'm very thankful that Mercy's doing better. And the one lesson uh, that I could take away from this was just like normally I feel like I'm pretty good at putting plans together and thinking through the logistics of things and yet in the heat of the moment of kind of terror and concern for my daughter I felt like I was making nothing but suboptimal decisions <laughs> and felt really bad for my wife who you know we both decided it's not a good idea for her to bring our five-week-old into the hospital during flu season but neither of us had figured that out when she could have stayed at home <laughs> in a much more comfortable place uh, for her and a, and a much more comfortable place uh, for my son, uh, Tommy. And so I, I think often with our books, our book babies, you could say, it's really easy to get into that same kind of frantic place where we're so emotionally charged, we're so excited or we're so scared that we make poor decisions. And I will say there's a lot of con artists in this industry that are specifically trying to get writers into that hyped mode where they're really scared or they're really greedy or they're really excited so that they then can be taken advantage of. And the one nice thing about a book baby as opposed to a real life baby is that you're never in a rush to make a decision. There's never like a life or death decision that you have to make right now. Do we go to the hospital or do we not go to the hospital? And anytime somebody tries to do that to you, somebody times to put pressure on you and rush you into making a decision, that should be a huge red flag. There's no reason why you can't sleep on it, why you can't Google it and take a deep breath in publishing. Your book is not going to die because you wait. And so um, I guess the one kind of takeaway I have is try not to make decisions in that panicked state if you can 
avoid it. Uh, you have been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. and Alex Newhouse on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you innovative ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. Thanks for listening.